Hello, friends, and welcome to this introductory lecture into the study of the Gospels. In your study over the next year, you will look at all four Gospels and explore their unique pictures of Jesus. If you look in your Bible, the Gospels come first in the arrangement of the New Testament. And as such, they mirror the placement of the Torah, the five books of the law in the Old Testament. This is an important fact that we'll periodically return to in our discussion today. Now, while the Gospels come first canonically in the New Testament, meaning the way that the New Testament is arranged by the early church, they do not come first in terms of chronology. We must remember that the time of Jesus's crucifixion is dated sometime in the late 30s Common Era. And the earliest gospel narrative isn't dated until around 70 CE. That's 30 plus years where we are between the time of Jesus and the stories of Jesus. The letters from Paul, and also the letter from James, predate the gospels, with Paul writing during the 40s and 50s, and the letter from James sometime around 60 CE. These letters provide the earliest written record of what the church knew and taught about the person of Jesus and his earliest followers. And when we look at them, we realize that Paul actually writes only a handful of facts about Jesus's life. Let's look at what they are. First, Paul writes in Galatians that Jesus was a man who was born of a woman under the law, meaning that Jesus was fully human and lived in the same situation as that of a person like Paul. Interestingly, Paul does not seem to know anything of a virgin birth or really of even a good birth story, only that it's important that Christians know that Jesus was born into the same condition of humanity as the rest of us. Throughout Paul's letter to the Roman church, he continuously refers to the one man Jesus, paralleling Jesus with the figure of Adam in the book of Genesis. And despite this, he also consistently refers to Jesus as the Son of God. So we get both a picture of Jesus being a man, a human being, but also something more than just a man. So this is the fact that we begin with from Paul. Second, Paul knows that Jesus was betrayed by someone close and that Jesus accepted this fact as a part of his suffering. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes a brief description of the Lord's Supper, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. The Corinthians are having some difficulty with understanding that celebrating the body and blood of the Lord through the bread and the wine is about consuming the suffering of Jesus. Literally, it's taking the self-sacrifice of Jesus into themselves and making it their own identity in the world. This is one of the few aspects of Jesus's teaching that we see in the Gospels later that Paul records. Paul doesn't refer to any of Jesus's parables or his beatitudes, none of his sermons, nor his warnings to Jerusalem. Paul does not refer to Jesus's miracles or signs. Think the water into wine, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, healings, exorcisms. None of the beloved stories of Jesus show up in any of Paul's letters. Third, 
Paul knows and elaborates on the fact that Jesus was crucified publicly as a criminal. But Paul does not seem to know any of the other details. He makes no mention of Jesus's arrest and trial, no reference to him carrying his cross, nor having anyone else carry it, no description of the soldiers gambling for the homeless prophet's clothes. Paul writes that after dying, Jesus was buried, but Paul doesn't seem to know that it was a borrowed tomb or that it was set in a garden. And fourth, Paul constantly celebrates the fact that it was this crucified Jesus whom God raised from the dead. Paul knows that it was on the third day when Jesus was resurrected and that this resurrection was God's exaltation of Jesus, God's stamp of approval that removed all blemish from Jesus's death as a criminal. These are the details of Jesus's life and ministry that Paul knows. And as you can see, Paul's and the early church's written story of Jesus is pretty pared down when we compare them to the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Basically, the church's only written account of Jesus's life amounted to its proclamation that goes something like this. This one man, Jesus, born of a woman under the law, was betrayed by those closest to him. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead by God on the third day. That's it. This was the essential proclamation of the Apostle Paul. And you know what? It was enough. This message was enough to plant churches around the Mediterranean. It was enough to inspire faith in Christ. It was enough to encourage those suffering because of their trust in Jesus of Nazareth. And it was enough to resolve apostles to imprisonment and death on its behalf. So what changed? that this streamlined proclamation of Jesus as crucified Messiah in the apostolic letters of the 40s, 50s, and 60s became the expanded literary genre of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, known as the gospel narrative? Well, the answers are historical. First, in 70 CE, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and most of Jerusalem with it. Second, the first generation of Christians, those eyewitnesses to the events around Jesus, was dying out. In other words, both the place and the people who connected the church to the story of Jesus on earth were gone. Narrating the story of Jesus and the early community more fully with characters, setting, and plot provided a tangible interaction for those who were not there in person. Most importantly, perhaps, narrating the story of who Jesus was and who the early followers of Jesus were provided and still provides a framework for all Christians at all times in which to construct their identity. This is one way in which the layout of the Gospels first in the New Testament corresponds to the law in the Old Testament. Hebrew Bible scholars observe that a substantial portion of the Pentateuch, the first five books, also known as the Torah, was actually compiled, or maybe even parts of it first written down, while the Jews were in exile, after Judah and Israel had fallen. In other words, when Israel's people were living in their homeland, 
when they felt connected to it and to each other, they didn't have as great a need for a fully written down story. It seems that becoming disconnected from the place and the people of your faith prompts people to write down the stories that provide the foundation for that cherished identity. So, who started the New Testament movement of writing down the story in narrative form? Well, we don't actually know. <laughs> the earliest manuscripts of all four Gospels are actually anonymous. Church history later attributed certain Gospels to certain authors, such as Luke and John, but we don't actually know for sure who wrote each Gospel. In fact, many scholars of John's Gospel think that it was written by a community of disciples, not by one single author. Which one was first? And you might think the answer is Matthew, because Matthew is the first Gospel in canonical order, but the answer is actually Mark. Not only is Mark the earliest gospel, but Mark is the source from which both Luke and Matthew derive their outlines of the gospel story. We call these three gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, the synoptics. Synoptic in Greek means to see with, meaning that all three of these gospels look at the story of Jesus and the early community from a similar perspective. And while Luke and Matthew both use material that Mark does not have, the order in which they place the events around the ministry, death, and resurrection mostly agree with Mark, even if they each tell the story in unique ways. So Mark's gospel is the earliest, and Matthew and Luke follow a decade or so after. And the gospel of John is another matter entirely. John is the latest gospel, dated to at least 90 CE, and it diverges from the perspective of the other three gospels in many ways. So we can think of Mark as the proto-gospel, the one that showed the others how it's done. In fact, Mark begins his story with this line that acts as a sort of title, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think it's helpful to think about Mark's whole story this way. Mark's telling of the story of Jesus begins the gospel genre, literally the genre of reporting the good news. The other gospels are the continuation of the good news, but they found their inspiration and manner of organization in Mark's story. In fact, the gospel of Luke begins with this very information. The writer of Luke says in his first three verses, since many others have already undertaken to write down an account of the events which have been fulfilled among us, so I too decided to write a narrative. Hmm. One and only one telling of the events of Jesus's life and the early Christian community's beginnings was never the goal, but rather the telling of a gospel story generated more gospel stories. In this way, we, believers here and now, share something very important with Luke and Matthew. You see, scholars refer to the different writings of the Bible as witnesses, voices that add their testimony to the story of God and God's people. And all of us who claim Christian or follower of Christ as our identity 
We too base much of our testimony, our witness, on the Jesus we meet in these gospel narratives. So just like Luke and Matthew, we have read and heard and seen stories of Jesus, and those stories have become a vital part of how we understand Jesus, how we understand our community and ourselves. And certainly, we all add things to the story. Unique experiences we've had, struggles that we've undergone, and reflections on all of these experiences. And this is a good example of how the gospel genre is generative. Mark did not write it, and that settled it. No. Mark wrote his gospel and then sparked a testimony-sharing jag in the early church. And for this, we are grateful. It's also important to realize that when the early church gathered the documents of the New Testament and decided what was going to be included in the authorized version, that they canonized, they authorized all four Gospels. And so they canonized difference. The same church that included the letter from James included the letters of Paul. The same church that accepted Mark's testimony accepted John's witness to the Jesus story. Different perspectives and opinions were permitted into the fellowship of witnesses that we call the Bible because they all bore witness to the story of God's people and they all proved useful in community life and worship. And here we return to the parallel between the Gospels in the New Testament and the law in the Hebrew Bible. The law is placed first because it governs the rest of the books. So the Gospels function as the law of the New Testament. And this may seem strange at first. How can a story, or actually, how can stories be authoritative? How does a story rule? Well, again, we can look at the Pentateuch. While the books of the law certainly include particular rules, and consequences for both following and breaking the rules, the entire first book of the law is only a story, Genesis. A story of a God who creates, a God who makes promises, and who remains faithful to those to whom he has promised. The second book, Exodus, narrates the story of God rescuing his people from slavery. And the story of God and God's people growing together in their relationship which includes many growing pains, continues through Leviticus and Numbers. And finally, the story of the law ends with the people preparing themselves to enter into God's promised land. Such a story is authoritative first because it is a constant reminder for the people of their identity. They are loved by God. They've been rescued by God and are being prepared by God to receive and give blessing. How a people see themselves and understand themselves shapes their behavior. An example of this function of a story's authority might be that since Israel was liberated by God from slavery, it would live into its freedom. It would not worship idols or oppress people. A story is also authoritative in that it's exemplary. A people that loves God and is grateful for God's actions on their behalf will want to emulate God and take similar actions as did God. 
an example of this function of story's authority might be that since God liberated his people from slavery, the people of God should work for the freedom and liberation of others. Now, the law in the Hebrew Bible certainly has direct and explicit commandments and rules that are not in narrative form. Uh, we think about, handily, the Ten Commandments, which are certainly articulated as direct and explicit rules. But notice how the Hebrew Bible introduces them. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the Ten Commandments are introduced, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first commandment follows not to worship other gods, and then the rest, such as prohibitions against theft and adultery. But the justification, the motivation to follow any of those individual rules is based in their relationship to the story that God brought this people out of a violent oppressive place so that they might be free. All the commandments capture an aspect of what life should be for people who do not live in a violent, oppressive place. And so it is from the story of deliverance that the law gains its standing. And so it is with the Gospels. The authority of the Gospels is not in their historical accuracy. We have no way of knowing anyhow which of the four captures more events as they actually happened. And there are some discrepancies between the Gospels that cannot be harmonized historically. For example, the Synoptic Gospels feature Jesus cleansing the temple, driving out money changers and such during his week of teaching in the temple, right before his execution. John, in his gospel, has this cleansing take place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's unhelpful to ask which of the gospels got it right or got it wrong. The better question is, what is each writer communicating by placing certain events and characters in certain orders? Remember that the gospels being written decades after the events means that the gospels weren't written at the time of the events. And so the authors have and do take a lot of artistic license in composing the story of Jesus and his followers in whatever sequence they see best to communicate the whole nature of Jesus's story. The authority of the Gospels is also not based on a set of punishments for disobedience. Rather, like the Torah, the Gospels have an authority because they shape our identity as a people beloved of God. In other words, they tell us who we are. They also have authority because they shape our behavior as people who seek to follow and imitate Christ. In other words, not only do they tell us who we are, but they show us who we are called to be. And so this year, as we seek to find Jesus in the gospel narratives, I think we will also find a picture of how Jesus sees us and who God has called to be as Jesus' followers. Finally, just as the books of the law in the Hebrew Bible govern the interpretation of all the other books that follow from Psalm to 2 Samuel, so the position of the Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament means that the early church meant for the Gospel narratives to govern the interpretation of all the rest of the New Testament books. 
This means that the story of the person of Jesus and his community is the authority through which we interpret everything else in the New Testament, from Paul's letters to John's revelation. So when you finish surveying all four of the Gospels, you are not only better situated to understand your identity as a Jesus follower, but you have the proper orientation to read and interpret all the other documents the New Testament community left to us. And this is indeed a gift because there can be many challenges in reading some of the New Testament. Reading Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth and wondering how to apply it faithfully to your own community? Read it through the lens of the person Jesus that you meet in the Gospels. Are you reading John's apocalyptic revelation and wondering which interpretations are correct, given that revelation is a magnet for opinions of all kinds? Ask yourself, does the interpretation of revelation match up with the Jesus you meet in the Gospels? Jesus Christ the Word made flesh is the interpretive key for all the written words of the believing community. And this is the gift of the Gospel Narratives. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's Office Hours 2022 edition. Welcome back. We're so glad that you are joining us as we move into a whole new year of meeting Jesus in new ways, not necessarily for the first time, but maybe for the first time in very particular ways as seen through all four Gospels. We are really excited because we are partnering again um, with Candler Foundry um, at Emory University to really dig in and learn from each of the Gospel stories who Jesus is and the particularities of that story and the Jesus that we find in Mark and then Matthew, then John, and then Luke. We are going to be re reading extensively about who Jesus is, all these different characteristics, um, an understanding of the communities of the gospel and who wrote them. And this week we kick off um, Mark um, next week with our lecturer, Reverend Dr. E.B. Arnold, who is the postdoctoral fellow at Candler Foundry, who many of you know from last year's podcast. And so E.B., we're so glad you're with us. Can you kick off the conversation for us? Thank you, Jen. I am so glad to be here back with you, St. Lucas. Um, this is one of my favorite places to be and one of my favorite places to be in our biblical text. Uh, the Gospels have a really prominent role in the Bible and in our lives as Christians. And I think it's just interesting to talk for a moment about how they came to be, because I feel like that tells us so much. Um, the Gospels actually, although they're first in our canon of the New Testament, they are not the earliest Christian documents we have. Mm -hmm. The earliest Christian documents we have are actually Paul's letters. And in Paul's letters, we know that Jesus was born of a woman, Paul says. Uh, he doesn't know anything about a virgin birth, but he knows he was an actual human being. He was crucified, and God raised him from the dead. And that's it. That's all we have as far as the written record in Christian life. And then, of course, after Paul dies and decades after Jesus has been on earth, there is this movement to write out the whole story of what Jesus's time on earth looked like and what that early community looked like. And so that has its place of prominence in the New Testament, which is really interesting because it mirrors the place of the Torah in the Old Testament. So what the law is to the Hebrew Bible 
the Gospels are to the Christian Bible, to the New Testament. And so the question that I have that I think is really interesting to explore is, if it is meant to be our version of the law, how is a story, like the story of Jesus and the story of the community, how is that authoritative? How is it law for us? What do we do with that? Mm. I think that's a really interesting question, and I never really thought about it in in terms of, too, where we're at in our culture. Um, I think our culture really likes prescriptive. I think we like... We don't like the word law necessarily, (laughs) (laughs) but but we have, especially in religion in our culture, made it into give me, you know, 10 easy things that I know that I'm in, that I'm good, Mm -hmm. that I've got my ticket punched for salvation, Uh um, which is so antithetical to how Jesus taught. And, you know, there there wasn't a parable that had one answer. And and if there was a a theme for the parable, Jesus didn't even give that. He left it to people. um, Kind of a, a, a figure it out as you go kind of faith is what Jesus offered. So it is, I, I don't know the answer to that um, it, because we're so stuck in this black and white understanding. And I think people think you're not biblical if you're not being prescriptive. What do you guys think? Well, if you if you make that comparison, I love that comparison, E.B., of, of the, the Torah and, and the Gospels because it, in both places... Um, even at the very beginning, let's go to the very beginning of the Torah. This is the thing I love talking about is mm-hmm. Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Same story, completely different details. Mm-hmm. You've got now yep. four accounts at the beginning of, uh, of the New Testament with some similar details, but some very different details. Yep. And so I have always felt like the, the idea of story, be, story is prescriptive in some ways, but it's not about the details of the story. It's about how the story is told. And, and I think we learn more about what we are supposed to do in response to it when we pay attention to how the story is told, not necessarily the details of the story. So to me, if you look at the first two chapters of the, the, the Torah, you're, you're being told this isn't going to be prescriptive. You need to read this in a way where there are multiple interpretations, multiple ways of understanding this. When we, when we look at the beginning of, of, of the New Testament and you have these four accounts of Jesus' life, um, we're also being told, hey, this is going to mean different things to different people. So read that knowing that and knowing that for, for your context, for all of these different contexts. So for me, story is authoritative, not necessarily in the details of the story, but you've got to pay attention to, to who's telling the story, how the story is being mm-hmm, told. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you do get some prescription from that, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not the, the here's four, four steps to a better life that we, <laughs> right, we right, prefer. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And in that presentation, we are called to like wrestle with nuance, right? Um, it's not, it, it presents faith as this thing or the instruction present in those books as something you have to live out and live with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, we, when, we, when it's presented in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because that fits with this rhythm that mm-hmm. we're inviting people into, which is a very Methodist rhythm, that we learn the story, story first early mm-hmm. in the week, and then we wrestle with it in context. We live it in community, and what does this mean, and what does this look like, and how, how does it find authority in my life in this moment? Because I could read it eight months from now, and it'll find authority mm-hmm. in a new uh-huh. way because it's an endless tape. Tales. <laughs> Get that word out. Tales old as time. Tales old as time. 
And it's a living, it's a, in, in that way, it's a living document that it continues to, to shape and, and inform us as we read it and read it again and we reread it. And um, Dr. Strawn's for on reading, you got to reread it and then go back to it, that there's something else that's continually saying to us and shaping us. And, I, and I, the, the Torah is the same way, right? These stories draw us to that. And so um, and I think it's also interesting that, uh, that, that this parallel of Torah and, and the Gospels that you, you point out for us because, you know, uh, the Gospels coming after Paul's uh, writings and Paul's ministry, these Gospels, these stories are coming from a second, sometimes third generation of Christians mm-hmm. trying to understand in the turmoil of the, the temple, second temple being destroyed and, yeah. and now beginning persecution, their identity who they are, and, and Torah, very much so, that's what those stories are speaking into, who we are and who we are in relationship with God. And so when you mentioned that, that was what popped out to me is, is oh, this is about, this is also then about identity. This is about who we are and who we are in relationship to God, specifically in the person of, of Christ. Absolutely. I mean, that's. I'm so glad you pointed that out because the, the gospel itself um, as a genre is a, a new for the when the gospels come out, it is new um, and very unique. Mm. Like we not only has nothing ever come like it, we don't even have a whole lot that comes like it afterwards. Right. And people have wrestled, scholars wrestled, is it is it historiography? Is it biography? Uh, and and it's one of the reason that they wrestle with that is is it about Jesus like a biography would be, or is it about the community that's being shaped and where it gets draws its identity from, mm-hmm. where it gets its ethos, where it gets its ethics, um, and so that's why we we tend to think of it as being a combination in some sense mm-hmm. of those two things. But what I also love about it, what, and I'm I'm getting this from what you all are talking about, how the the story is alive. Mm-hmm. And the gospel as a narrative isn't just authoritative in the sense that uh, it directs our lives, but it's also generative. It's authoritative in that it is the source from which other things come. And that's what's so great about looking, as your church is going to be doing, looking at all four gospels is that Mark comes first. And we know at least Matthew and Luke, we don't know about John. <laughs> at least John is something entirely his own. But Matthew and Luke draw their inspiration mm-hmm. from Mark. They read Mark and they feel free to alter Mark and add right. to Mark and change Mark. But that does not discount the fact that they are drawing off of his telling mm. and make it their own. Right. And so mm. what I want to know is how many gospels, by, by that logic, how many gospels are there? Yeah. Are there only four? No. So I want to. I want to. I, I love that. I, I love that so much. And I. I think it's so interesting when people get get offended when you mm-hmm. alter something or when you point out inconsistencies or whatever it is. And and I think when I hear people talk about it because of the way they've been steeped in what what they've been told the Bible is meant to be, I think they're getting offended on behalf of the writers. And what you have just said is so indicative that these writers were, were they already did that work. They already said, you know, I'm going to change this detail because my community needs to hear this differently. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in Matthew and Luke using Mark. And again, John just, John's like, no, this is for my community. Yeah. <laughs> it is very specific. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So I think that's, that's just one of the things I wanted to like add on there of, of, we, we, we have these offenses or we have these things that feel taboo 
but that if you actually look at how and why and who is writing, it would not have been taboo for them. They're, they're, they, have, they have already done some of that in, in just the writing. So Well, and could it be, if, if we walk in that, that every community of faith is its own gospel. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's what we've said in 2021 that God is continuing, you know, the, 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 there's the last of the epistles and then there's revelation and revelation is a, is a, you know, a, a thought about what will happen when the kingdom comes again. And so the truth is we have all this space, not in the, not in the tech, not in the actual Bible that we hold in our hands, but but in God's understanding, there's all this space between that last epistle and our revelations, mm-hmm. where we're where every faith community is writing their own gospel, where mm-hmm. God is writing God's own gospel and their relationship with Jesus Christ mm-hmm. until that day when justice rolls down like waters and until that day that it comes. And I feel like that's what's modeled for us in there being four gospel accounts canonized Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, hey, here's four. Mm -hmm. What's yours? Mm -hmm. It it asks that question by the way it has been put together. Mm -hmm. Simply by putting four down, they are giving us permission that there are more. Right. Mm -hmm. Isn't it absurd also (laughs) to think that something so big could be um, just contained within four books yeah. or in one book or a right. consistent story throughout. I think that doesn't, if, like that impulse <laughs> to have it all fit together is like you're missing the point. If Jesus yeah. is who we say Jesus is, right, right, right. literally and, mm-hmm. and, and physically and, and cosmically, mm-hmm. four books aren't going to do yeah. it. In fact, at the very end, I, for as much as I pick on the Gospel of John, <laughs> his ending says... Yeah. Now, I've written these things yes. for you, and these are trustworthy stories, but Jesus did so many things that all the books in the world mm-hmm. could not contain them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in some sense you're right that that's not only our privilege as Christians, but really our mandate, mm-hmm. that we are supposed to go out and finish the story yeah. or create the story anew anywhere and any time and any place that the risen Christ is present and working in the world, which as Christians we believe is all the time and everywhere, right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then there is gospel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the work of leading your life with God's story. Leading your life as if God's writing God's story through you. That public theology that we want people to learn, live, and love. And that's the work that we do in the space of the week with, with one another. Um, we learn the story. We live it together in community. We love God and God's story. Rehearsing that story and all we've learned in worship. And then we go out and lead our lives. And mm-hmm. we lead our lives in a particular way that that story has shaped us so that we're continuing to write that story mm-hmm. and publicly and 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 sometimes not even having anything to do with St. Luke's because you are a public theologian that's writing a new gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that 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 hopefully that gives us a new relation because I think of also what you were saying Melissa is is it's some of our uh, embedded theology or our relationship that was handed down to us with the Bible and this opens that up to have a deeper more profound interaction with scripture interaction mm-hmm. with the gospel to understand what it means for us mm-hmm. and to let it transform us and, and allow us to live our lives well and it would be easier mm-hmm. if it were just these four and they were just- prescriptive Right. Because I think there is there is a resistance to what you're describing, Jen, because that's a lot harder. It is. 
It's yeah. the risk that's, for your way. Yeah. But is that, <laughs> that what Jesus that, was that, talking that about? That means I have to do something. Yeah, well, and is that part yeah. of what Jesus was talking about? And take up your cross and follow me. I like, probably. Follow, <laughs> I mean, we so often think of that as I have to sacrifice or I have to go to the cross. And, and really, it's take up the burden of this story and mm-hmm. follow me as I continue to write it in you. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's what that scripture is is more about than we understand. I was thinking the same thing. Listening to Jen talk is like, that's daunting. The idea of living that story out so that you can tell it with the uh, particular shapings of your life because in order to do that, you actually have to be living it. And when yes. we think about those like harmful interpretations and understandings, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a lot of those are produced by not actually living the story and not actually walking through that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, it, this makes me think of a, uh, I heard a great interview with the writer Elizabeth Gilbert mm-hmm. and she had been writing fiction for a while and when she went to go write some of her first-person narrative, more autobiographical things, people said, aren't you scared that now they're going to see who you really are when Mm -hmm. you're writing nonfiction? And she said, oh, no, I am far more vulnerable Mm -hmm. when I'm writing a story Mm -hmm. because things come out in fiction Mm -hmm. in a story that you're not necessarily aware of. There are so many more layers there, and so there is so much more to be exposed. Uh, And so I think that when we talk about it would be easier to have the story laid out in such a way that it tells us what to do, um, it's also asking for more vulnerability to enter a story because you have to let the story enter you. Mm. And and when you're sharing those two internal and external landscapes, um, so much more of Jesus is revealed to us in the story, Mm. but so much more of us is also revealed as we study the story as we live the story as we like Jen said allow that story to be written in us this demands um like you said a risk well because if it's prescriptive that tells me what my behavior is Mm -hmm. and my behavior is often something external that I can control for the world Mm -hmm. but if it's if it's living it then it changes my attitudes, my mm-hmm. assumptions. It gets into my privilege. It, mm-hmm. Jesus really gets in and, and digs into that, really, those dark spaces that I hide away in my heart. And it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's taking the risk. It's the vulnerable part versus just changing my behavior to be able to pass the test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are it's, two different things. It's that yeah, transformative nature. Yeah, I, this is an that essay test, fun. not a true false. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And you know, like, kind of back to the authorship piece, like the when the Bible was canonized, the New Testament, they all knew all of this stuff too. Yeah. But we've we've ended up in a space and time in the last hundred fifty years or so that 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 no, that's none of that's true. None of that's the case. Like no, 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 no. Like that's the power of it. I like to think that these these ancient people, these people 2,000 years ago who are, who are crafting these narratives and help us understand the, the, the person of Jesus and the ministry, the gospel, wanted that. And that's what's exciting for me about this year is we get a chance to get back to that. Right. Um, we get back to living that out and allowing it to transform us. And I think in that, it has a protective nature um, because... If you have just a laid out, do not do this or do this, right? Uh, That's pretty plain and blank. But as long as it's story, as long as it's something that we can each read and it touches a different part of us, we can each go, no, hold on a minute. 
that might mean this, or I hear that this way, right? Mm-hmm. And it protects the, uh, it protects that idea of uh, that there are multiple ways to understand and see this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love when thinking about the Gospels as coming after this early, you know, you, we think about Paul's early community where he's setting up these churches, and all that we know they know is Jesus lived and was crucified and was raised from the dead. That's it. Um, But there's something that these gospel writers, as that, like like you said, Judd, as these early Christians, that first generation and even second generation are starting to die, that the community wants to preserve something. There is something that they're like, we, we are in danger of losing if we lose touch with this story and that there's something the story is keeping alive. What is that thing? What is, what is the thing that the story keeps alive that it, it was only present for that early community? And what is that story? How do we still keep that alive? Mm-hmm. That's gospel, right? Mm. I, I, I think part of when I, when I listen to what you're saying, I think what, what was so important to keep alive was the human side of Jesus that allowed divinity to break through, mm. if that makes sense. It was the, I'm human and and that leper is an outsider and um, is unclean and is a risk, but the divine image in me says, I love them, so how do I show it? And, and those are the things that Jesus said are the red letters, and so we can we can memorize all those things. But if we don't, if we don't see what he did and where he went and who he was with, what he mm. said is not as it's it's disconnected from that probably very human divine struggle that he had, mm-hmm. which is the human divine struggle that 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 we can nuance as well. It, does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah. That those places where. I want to ignore this pain that I'm walking by or driving by, but God in me calls me to a different reaction. And so when someone dies, you tell the legends. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when if if the story of Jesus stayed oral tradition, uh, I remember even when I was growing up, the the, the concept of sharing the gospel was really about Holy Week. (laughs) That was really the only piece that was was focused on. And I think you're absolutely right, Jen. It's It's the fullness of who Jesus was, human and divine. Because if someone hadn't gone back and 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 t- I, I assume, I, I have this vision of, of these, these writers going and talking to as many people as they can to hear as many stories, because so many of these stories are one-offs with individuals, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't know those stories right. unless you'd talk to those individuals. Mm-hmm. So, so it's getting the full picture, not just the Holy Week picture, mm-hmm. yeah. because it could be really easy to summarize Jesus in Holy Week and say, that was it, and that's the story we're going to tell, mm-hmm. and that's all that matters. And, 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 throw, and throw a pillow. And even now, yeah. we, we, we sometimes just do that, but there's so much more, and, and it's, not, it's not just about Holy Week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. It's both and, right? It's all of, mm-hmm. all of it. Right, and a death is only as important as the life that preceded right. it. Right. And I think that's, that's really what I'm hearing when I hear you talk about that is we can't talk about 
the death and sacrifice of Jesus until we talk about the sacrifice of simply being human. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, yeah. and the transformation, not only in the people that encountered Jesus, but the transformation of the way people began to see God. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think that transformative encounter is, you know, this this thing that they want to hand on to yeah. us and say, don't lose sight right. Right. of that that clash, but that embrace. And it's the story of Jesus, but it's the story of all those other people too. Exactly, mm-hmm. right, exactly. A lot of times you end up then having those as individual stories, but it's it's the, it's the emphasizing that to, to tell the Jesus story, you have to name right. widows and orphans and blind people and women at wells and <laughs> and, and disciples, yeah. that, that Jesus' story is not just about Jesus. Exactly, because in Paul's letters, which came before, he loves to talk about the body of Christ. Yeah. And he loves to talk about that is us. That is all of us. That's everyone who is a member of this believing community, who is a practitioner of this gospel. Um, And so the the beauty, I think, of the gospels is they gave like a picture of, okay, tell me about the body of Christ. Well, it's got Jesus himself. But like you said, it's also got all the rest of us. Right. And so that's the ultimate picture that we get. And that is the picture that you guys are going to venture through this yeah. year. Yes. It's going to be exciting. And so, we are so great. glad that you're going to be with us, especially in this Gospel of Mark. And uh, we can't wait to kind of dive into that. And so just for those listening, you're going to be reading a chapter a week starting next week. And uh, we're going to move through the first eight weeks. Um, is going to be an opportunity to see, to meet Jesus as the friends, the the rebel, the, um, the, the, the healer, the miracle worker. And then in Lent, we'll move into a, a different understanding of Jesus as we move towards Jerusalem and towards Holy Week in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be taking the Gospel of Mark all the way through to Easter. Um, so we hope you'll get a good Bible. Um, uh, the, we've got ones we can um, prescribe for you um, and that you'll come and be a part of this learn, whether it's on Sunday nights or checking out the podcast. So thank you guys. And we're ready to to jump into the Gospel of Mark, and we hope you have a wonderful new year.